This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg, reporting from Tallahassee, where the health department reports another 247 fatalities from COVID-19. That is the third highest daily death toll since Florida began counting. But there are some hopeful signs. The number of newly confirmed cases Tuesday was under 10,000 for the 10th day in a row. You know, we think we're uh, heading in a much better direction in terms of the trends uh, over the last um, uh, week or two. But a new survey shows 79% of Floridians fear they will contract the virus and die. Throughout the crisis, Governor Ron DeSantis has emphasized the importance of protecting seniors. Visitors have been banned from nursing homes and adult living facilities, but he's trying to find some way for families to visit their loved ones again. If you have a a, a way forward, uh, I think that would put a lot of people at ease knowing that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Mary Daniels of Jacksonville is part of the group that will come up with a plan. She's the woman who found a way to visit her husband at his memory care home by getting a job there as a dishwasher. I sit here representing hundreds of thousands of caregivers. It's not just me. I represent all of them, and we are desperate, and we are lonely, and we are hopeless and helpless. On today's Sunrise interview, we talk with the director of United Faculty of Florida about reopening college campuses and pose the ultimate COVID question. Are we all expendable? I don't know if we're expendable or not, Rick, but I tell you what, I don't think the governor's on my side. I'll put it that way. We'll also have your calendar of political events and check in with a Florida man accused of hacking his way into Twitter to steal more than $100,000 worth of Bitcoin. Although, to be fair, he's not quite a Florida man yet. He's only 17. And now the top stories on Sunrise for Wednesday, August 5th. Well, it was nice while it lasted. After two days where there were fewer than 100 COVID-19 fatalities reported by the state health department, that number shot up Tuesday as 247 fatalities were confirmed. That is the third highest daily death toll since the state began keeping score. The pandemic has now killed at least 7,526 people in Florida, but the number of newly reported cases was just under 5,500, and that is the 10th day in a row the number of new cases has been lower than 10,000. The governor is hopeful. We obviously see how this thing has evolved in different parts of the country, different parts of the world. Um, you know, I think the trend is positive. I think by the time we get, um, you know, a couple weeks into the future, I think we're going to continue to see um, the prevalence uh, decline. And that'll be a very, very good thing. But a new poll indicates most Floridians fear they have yet to see the worst of the pandemic and they support bold policy in response to COVID-19. Jason Delgado of Florida Politics reports that the poll, commissioned by State Innovation Exchange, also shows Floridians remain fearful of the pandemic's impact on their health, the economy and the election. 79 percent of Floridians in that survey said they fear they will contract the virus and die. 84 percent are concerned about people losing work or income. 84 percent fear small business and restaurants may close down permanently. And 71 percent say they feel forced to choose between their health and their job. Governor DeSantis and the First Lady traveled to Jacksonville for a roundtable discussion on the fate of Florida seniors, especially residents of nursing homes and adult living facilities who are captives of COVID. Seniors face the greatest danger from coronavirus, so family and friends cannot visit them anymore, at least not in person. And the governor would like to change that. You know, those measures have come at a cost. Uh, You have residents of long-term care facilities that have other health problems. And we've had residents of long-term care facilities that have passed away for things other than coronavirus. Of course, this is, uh, this is kind of part, of, part of life. Uh, but throughout the last four and a half months, you know, they have not had the ability to have family members uh, visiting them. They've not had the type of human contact 
which really, really makes a difference to people uh, who are in those conditions. And obviously, it makes a, it makes a major difference for the caregivers and for, for the family members. And so uh, that human cost, the emotional cost of having these measures in place to try to limit the spread of COVID, uh, those costs are, are profound. Four and a half months is a long, long time. And uh, we've just got to look at this and say, is there anything we can do right now? Is there things we can do if certain indicators are met in a week or two weeks or a month? And I think a lot of the family members understand that these are difficult circumstances. Uh, clearly, they would not want uh, policies to be done that would lead to massive amounts of people in these facilities getting infected. Um, but I think that if you have a, 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 a way forward, uh, I think that would put a lot of people at ease knowing that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. The question for nursing homes is how do you let the relatives in while keeping the virus out? DeSantis is suggesting people who've already had COVID and have recovered would be safe. One of the things I think we can do is any family member who has COVID antibodies should be allowed to go visit the facilities. I mean, if you test positive for that, you know, we know that that confers uh, a certain uh, level of immunity. Most people think about six months at a minimum. Uh, we have not had anyone be reinfected, of course, anywhere in the world thus far. I would be comfortable saying, uh, you know, if you do have those, those uh, COVID-19 antibodies, you know, that you should be able to go in um, and, and, and see your family member. Uh, so we may work on that and may get moving on that. The governor is looking for more ideas, so he asked Mary Daniels of Jacksonville to help out. Her husband, Steve, lives in a home for people with memory problems, and after being repeatedly denied permission to visit, she found a workaround. Mary got a job there washing dishes, so when she finishes work, she's free to visit Steve. I sit here representing hundreds of thousands of caregivers. It's not just me. I represent all of them, and we are desperate, and we are lonely, and we are hopeless and helpless, and um, I am absolutely confident that we will come up with ideas to get us step-by-step this is not a fast, uh, unfortunately, we, and we don't want to open the doors. We don't want to be foolish. We don't want to make mistakes here. It's incredibly important that we do it right. But I am truly confident that we are going to be able to get, um, get ideas and put them in, into implementation for, for the state of Florida. That will be copied, by the way, um, all across the United States. We have an opportunity to put out a roadmap. They are watching us today and they're watching what we're doing. And I'm thrilled to not even not only be able to do it for the state of Florida, but to really show the United States how we can make these uh, loved ones feel loved um, and nurtured and held and hugged again. Department of Elder Affairs Secretary Richard Prudhomme says that sort of contact is vital to seniors, and he believes the virus is as much a threat to their mental health as it is to their physical health. You've heard about the uh, undue impact on mental health. It's going to be the new pandemic. So we have been really looking at ways to address the mental health and the social isolation uh, of those individuals in, uh, in those facilities. And one of the things that we uh, looked at first was um, uh, engaging with the Alzheimer's Association on a, uh, something called Project Vital, which stands for uh, Virtual Inclusive Technology for All. And we, uh, using um, um, some of the stimulus money from the federal government, were able to uh, uh, provide uh, tablets uh, to communities and they're uniquely designed for older adults. You can't just drop a couple of tablets off at a facility and have the older adults mess around on the internet. It's a dangerous place. <laughs> so these tablets are uniquely designed for older adults. They're very sort of intuitive for them to use. It's also a controlled virtual technology environment. 
So there's resources on here that are very easy for someone to use. A staff member is also trained in how to, to use it. And there's areas of, of interest, you know, ranging from certain things like travel and playing games and relaxation, you know, worship, learning and, and listening and things like that, like music and, uh, and TV shows. They've actually got a real cool one as well, these old commercials from the 50s, which people sort of say, oh, yeah, I remember that. And it's sort of the, it's very intuitive. Uh, we've uh, uh, also purchased about 1,400 animatronic pets and their dogs and cats that actually uh, uh, older adults can identify with. And it's very calming when you sort of hand these, uh, these pets over, which look and feel like a real pet. You actually feel a heartbeat, uh, and uh, they meow and they, and they bark. It's kind of a little odd but so when you see them. But when you sort of see someone embrace that, and all of a sudden, all of that calm and that profound impact on that individual. And we're sort of seeing, uh, like I said, 1,400 requests for these uh, coming through. And we're getting these great stories of people saying, you know, that uh, someone hasn't talked for about nine weeks. All of a sudden, he's going around the facility introducing him to their new pet. Uh, so there's different ways of doing this. The technology can be pretty amazing. But Mary Daniels says high-tech toys are not enough. I love all these ideas. I mean, the, the virtual hug and all, all of this. I'm, I'm absolutely honored to be here. But I just want to make something very clear. I'm looking for a real hug. <laughs> I'm not looking for a virtual hug. And I love all of these ideas, but our goal is to get to our loved ones. They need a hug from us, not a picture of me on FaceTime, not me at the window. They need us. And so I, I like the small steps, and I don't mean to disrespect them in any way but I don't want anybody to be misunderstood about why I'm here. My goal is to safely and as quickly as possible with the right guidelines, get us back to our families. If you're wondering why nursing homes are off limits now, just look at the numbers. 3,155 of the Floridians killed by COVID were residents or staff members at long-term care. That's 42% of all the COVID deaths in the Sunshine State. Next up on the Sunrise interview, a conversation with Marshall Ogletree with the United Faculty of Florida. The union wants to delay the reopening of campuses because of the threat from COVID-19, but their protests are falling on deaf ears at the governor's office and the Department of Education. You're listening to the Sunrise podcast from Florida Politics, and we're much obliged. Florida Hospital Association members are safe, ready, and equipped to care for all Floridians. As our hospitals resume elective procedures, ensuring the safety and well-being of our patients, employees, and communities remains our first priority. Contact your local healthcare provider for information on visitation policies, access restrictions, and how to get needed care safely. Please visit the Florida Hospital Association at fha.org/covid for more information. Welcome back to Sunrise. Last week, the union that represents professors called on the governor and the State Department of Education to delay the reopening of college and university campuses. They say it would put the lives of students, faculty, and staff at risk by turning those institutions of higher learning into COVID-19 super spreaders. Marshall Ogletree is the executive director of United Faculty of Florida, and he's still waiting for a reply. You know, we had had uh, a major spike uh, all over Florida in the intervening week we've had four day record days of deaths in florida and you know positivity rates you know certainly more than 10 percent and uh in some places 20 percent down in southeast florida even our proposals that we made four to six weeks ago we felt were no longer valid because the situation had worsened tremendously and based on that and based upon the fact that we're talking about college-age students, and in, at the universities in particular, 
many live on campus. Uh, you know, we're talking about 50,000, 60,000 student institutions in Florida. And it just seemed to be a recipe for disaster because of other things that we've seen all over the news in the past few months, you know, beach, beach gatherings, social gatherings. And if any group gathers a lot, it's certainly the age group that attend college. So we are we're very concerned about this, as faculty members are. And we thought, why shouldn't we be moving towards all remote places like Harvard are and other institutions around the country are? And Florida was have a dramatic spike. Harvard had had their spike back early. You know, we are now experiencing the New England uh, situations that existed. And even, even in some of the places where it's kind of died away, the whole nation in the world is having a spike right now. I mean, Florida is just one of the worst spots, but, you know, uh, countries that had no cases there for a while are starting to have cases again, too. What is the CDC recommending as far as positivity rates when it's safe to return, and are we anywhere near that? I'm pretty sure it's 5% as being a real critical number, and yet we're double digits. Education is critical. We understand that. Public schools are affected by this. We understand that. We support them closing, too. And our, and I'll tell you, we have a ninth, incoming ninth grader, and he's going digital in the fall. But the, the fact is, you know, who is going to die? I mean, there, no one can tell you that there's not going to be deaths coming from this interaction between students and faculty, no matter what safety measures that are used. And, you know, our recommendations were good ones at the time, but uh, the situation on the ground has changed, and we don't think it's safe now. You know, don't – I would even be – you know, if we could get half of a loaf here, stop, don't reopen our colleges and universities until a certain date and re-look re at it again, you know, mid-October or whatever it might be. But now is the most unsafe time we've had in COVID-19, and they're talking about opening up uh, institutions that social gathering is a natural for them. So I guess the, the bottom line question, and has anyone from the administration told you how many teachers or faculty people are going to have to die before they take this, you know, reconsider their no, stand? No, I mean, we have gotten no formal response, Rick. The only thing I got, and this was only from the governor, and we sent this to Marshall Kreiser, Kathy had done Richard Corcoran, too. I got to do the volume of emails sent to the governor. There may be a delay in responding, blah, blah, blah. It's been a, seven days now. There's been no response. We've got no U.S. mail from these folks, from Hebda, Corcoran, uh, Kreiser, or the governor. You know, no call, no anything other than the next day, I guess a reporter or reporters asked about our statement last week. And basically, the state, the, what I read was uh, there's going to be no change. And the Board of Governors quoted their document saying we're agile. To me, agile meant, okay, you'll respond to what's happening on the ground. I've seen no agility. The bottom line is everybody seems to be the ostrich with their head in the sand and not evaluating the situation as it really is. And, and you know, fortunately, there are governor, 
well, not our governor, but there are some governors and some mayors that are reacting. I, I see Dan Gelber on CNN all the time, and they have a terrible situation in Miami-Dade, but at least they're trying to do something about it. They're making reasonable actions. We're just calling on presidents to do this uh, and see if they're called to task by the Board of Governors or by Commissioner of Education or the governor. I mean, I believe presidents should make a decision. And, you know, if they have to take it to the Board of Governors, you know, ask for a special meeting of the Board of Governors. But I believe they should have the authority to make those decisions because the safety of those students and the faculty really fall directly at the shoulders of the presidents of colleges and universities. But at the end of the day, of the day uh, other people in higher offices are going to have to be held accountable for this. I'm, I'm hoping no one dies and no one's hospitalized. I wouldn't want that for anyone. I understand economics. I understand the economy of the state. But we're already doing very poorly. It would make more sense that if our governor said, yeah, let's close them down for a while, have remote learning. Because at universities and colleges, remote learning is a lot easier to achieve than it is for K-12. But let's have remote learning. Let's evaluate this after a period of time and then move forward. But it's like you know, we're sticking to our guns. And, you know, then there's threats about funding coming from different sources and things of that nature. It's just wrong. And uh, politics should not be about life and death. At the end of the day, uh, you know, it should be about what's good for the Floridians, uh, students, faculty, parents, etc. in the state. Do you get the feeling that the people in charge of this have basically sent a message that we're all expendable? I don't know what else to take from it because I've listened to some of those press conferences and I have not heard anything that comes close to being factual about what's happening on the ground. Everybody wants people to have in-face class experiences. That is the best form of education, in my opinion, and I think most researchers would say that. But the health of an individual and the safety of an individual is paramount. And it's just a fact that university faculty are older than the typical working force. So you're talking about a lot of university faculty that should be on remote learning. Because you can teach mathematics, you can teach English courses, humanities courses, and so forth online. Why not teach everything online if possible? I think it'd have to be way out of the norm to not teach it online. I don't think people are asking hard questions of anyone. They're doing what's politically expedient. And I don't know if we're expendable or not, Rick, but I tell you what, I don't think uh, the governor's on my side. I'll put it that way. Shortly after our conversation, Ogletree finally got an answer from Marshall Kreiser, the Chancellor of the Board of Governors of the State University System. He thanked Ogletree for the email, sent a link to the state's official blueprint for reopening, and did not answer the fundamental question about delaying the reopening on campus. Nothing in the way of empathy or understanding. It was simply a passive-aggressive way of telling the union to piss off. Your calendar of events begins at 9 with a meeting of the cabinet aides who will discuss the agenda for next week's meeting of the governor and cabinet. There is a meeting scheduled on the 11th, but the governor has been canceling most of the meetings during the pandemic. 
The State Reemployment Assistance Appeals Commission meets at 9.30. The group Integrity Florida will hold an online news conference at 11 to release a report about whether Florida will be able to host a secure election that relies heavily on vote-by-mail ballots. Chris Thompson, the president and CEO of the travel industry organization Brand USA, is scheduled to speak during an online meeting of the Economic Club of Florida at 11.30. Vice President Mike Pence returns to Florida at 2.30 to campaign in the Tampa Bay area, part of the president's re-election bid. The Revenue Estimating Conference meets at 3 to discuss tobacco taxes and money from a settlement with the tobacco industry. And finally today, a 17-year-old Florida man accused of hacking into more than 100 high-profile Twitter accounts as part of a cryptocurrency scam pleads not guilty to more than 30 charges filed against him in state court. Prosecutors claim Graham Ivan Clark, a recent high school graduate from Tampa, is part of an underground subculture of hackers dedicated to stealing, buying, and selling online accounts with famous usernames. Clark is accused of gaining access to the accounts by convincing Twitter employees that he was a colleague who needed login credentials to access the company's customer service platform. They say he posted messages on behalf of famous names like Barack Obama, Jeff Bezos, and Elon Musk, convincing victims into sending him Bitcoin donations of more than $100,000. That's it for today's episode of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg in Tallahassee, inviting you to join us again tomorrow as we plumb the depths of Florida politics.